My name is Greg Kodrowski, and this is my podcast, Theology 101. I like to study the Bible, and I don't think the Bible is really that difficult to understand. For the most part, it's really pretty simple, and simple is better. So if you're like me, and you want to know more about the Bible, or if you just want to hear more about the Bible, stick around. And if you want to know more about me or check out my pedigree, Google me or visit my website, theology101.net. Hey, thanks for coming back for more. And uh, we are going to continue our study on the biblical philosophy of discipleship. We're looking at edification. We finished up our study of the biblical philosophy of evangelism, looking at the means and goals of evangelism, the means are those big components, those elements, the, the steps that God takes to, to take a lost man and, and move him to be a, a born-again child of God. And so we looked at the means, we looked at the goals of evangelism, and found that they were really pretty simple. We just kind of need to go and preach. That's what God wants us to do, go preach the gospel. Couldn't be any more easy than that. And uh, today we're going to take a look at a biblical philosophy of edification. We're going to see the same thing with regard to edification that we saw with uh, evangelism. It's not difficult to understand, but we what we do need to be conscious of is that there are five means of edification. There are five components of the process that God takes us through as He conforms us more and more to the image of Christ. And so we're going to see there's means of edification, and then within those means— Obviously, there's a lot that uh, that God does, but then there's some things that He expects of us. And so, within the five means of uh, edification, we're going to see in the next lesson. Okay, and this we're going to talk about the we're going to talk about the means first, and we're going to take our time because there's a lot we need to discuss with regard to how um, edification actually happens. So we're going to take two episodes of the podcast to talk about the means of edification, but in the next lesson on the goals. Of edification, we're going to see there's four goals that God has for us that we need to be um, focusing on and 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 making an effort to to do. So means and goals, means and goals. Before we get into this, I had somebody ask me a question this week about the name of God. And somebody asked me about uh, you know should we be calling God Jehovah, like we see in the the King James Bible and and also in the other. Bibles and other languages like the Reign of Valera that comes from the Texas Receptus, we see Jehovah, which is Jehovah. And uh, all the new scholars, if you pick up a, a commentary or if you pick up something that, um, you know, a book, some modern Christian book or something, you're going to see the name written out to be pronounced Yahweh, okay? Yahweh. And um, the question was, okay, what's What's up with these two names? You know, you with all of the popular writing and even the scholastic writing of our days is so much based on the Westcott and Hort theory of textual criticism that it gets us away from the traditional text and it gets us away from tr- a traditional approach, a faith-based approach to uh, the transmission of, of the Bible throughout history and the transmission of the texts of the Bible throughout history, Hebrew, Greek, and then in, into the modern languages, or Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Aramaic, you know how it is. And this is no different. Okay, this is no different. You have two ways to write this name. You have two ways to pronounce this name, Jehovah and Yahweh. Okay, <clears throat> and and I'm sorry, I, I just, it just even, it just even irritates me, irritates me to pronounce that name, Yahweh. You know, it's like when you read these, 
theological journals and you catch all these buzzwords, you know, like robust. That's one of the new ones. We need a robust theology of work. Well, <clears throat> I would rather have a robust cup of coffee, um, and then we'll work out a biblical theology of work later on. But anyway, this is, this is the same thing, and what you see is what we see always. There are two lines of Bibles, right? You have the line of Bibles that comes up from Jerusalem through Antioch. It's Paul. He's planting churches in, uh, in Asia Minor, and then he goes into Europe. And you see the, the, the Bible being transmitted up to the north of, of the Mediterranean Sea through this, this good line. We call it the good line, the Byzantine line, because it ends up in the Byzantine Empire where Constantinople was, where Istanbul is now became the center and the hub of where a lot of the texts were, were brought together. So it's a Byzantine-type text just because of the that hub and that concentration of texts around that area of Constantinople in the Byzantine Empire. <clears throat> and uh, the other line of text, of course, it goes from Jerusalem through Philo down to Alexandria, Egypt. Origen gets a uh, Clement first, and then Origen gets, uh, gets his hands on it. And you find that down in Alexandria, the, the Bible's changed. He changed it. Origen changed it. Philo changed it. Clement changed it. They, they changed it according to their beliefs. And, and you can even—this this, this breaks down so much— of Christianity, because with these two lines of Bibles, you know, from Alexandria, Egypt, those Bibles uh, went up to Rome when Constantine, quote-unquote, had his conversion experience, and he ordered, I think it was like 50 copies of the Bible. Well, he got those from Alexandria, Egypt, and he basically got copies of uh, Origen's uh, conglomeration of the Bible. <clears throat> and so, you know, the Sinaiticus, the Texas Sinaiticus, the Codus um, Alexandria, the, the Codus of uh, the Va Vaticanus, all of those are copies of this text that came up from Alexandria, and it's it's changed. It's it's not it's not the same as you see in the text that's preserved up through uh, the Textus Receptus, the received text of the Good Line through the Byzantine Empire, and that resulted in in two schools, two schools of thought, uh, two schools of even hermeneutics, two two ways of approaching the Bible, two even two different sets of of presuppositions about what the Bible was in the Antioch and line up through the Texas Receptus of the Byzantine Empire, you find that the people who took care of that text and translated from that text were people who accepted the Bible as the authority of God, God's literal, spoken, uh, correct word. And they, they approached that word from what we would call a normal, literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, and they approached it as, hey, this is God's Word, God says what He means, and we are not to change it, we just accept it as as normal speech, as normal language, just as we would anybody who's communicating with, with us. And then you go down to Alexandria, and, um, and you see this just the opposite, it's allegorical method. They approach the Bible as, you know, here, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make the Bible say what I wanted to say. They didn't look for the clear meaning. They looked for some esoteric, mystical meaning behind the text. And so it was this allegorical interpretation, just about like anything goes. You know, just open up the Bible, point your finger, and then make something up. And so two schools of hermeneutics, two schools of thoughts, two, two schools of presuppositions. You know, the folks in Alexandria, they didn't approach the Bible as the authoritative Word of God. It was just another mystical book. It was just another religious book. It was just that, you know, and they and they changed it according to their whims. And so you find that that, that presupposition built their, their hermeneutic, their allegorical hermeneutic, and obviously that influenced how they studied the Bible and how they wrote about the Bible, and then, of course, how they applied the Bible, which 
you know, it was just hit or miss. And, and with that comes this, this even this, uh, this idea of Jehovah or Yahweh. Um, you find that through the line of the Textus Receptus in the Hebrew text, you have the, the, the Hebrew consonants and then the vowel points. Um, and that is included in the Masoretic text. And through that line, the Antiochian line that came up through the Byzantine Empire, what we call the Textus Receptus, that Masoretic text, the, we have always accepted consonants and vowel points as inspired. And yet when you go through the Alexandrian text, okay, what we call the critical text, because they were critical of the text, that's just their their hermeneutic, their presupposition, it's not God's word, we'll just change it however we want. And they approach the Bible with this thought of the consonants are inspired, but the vowel points are not, the vowel points were added later. And so they came up with this fancy, new, scholastic, look at us, let's pat ourselves on the back pronunciation of God's name as Yahweh, because they only accepted the consonants. And then they, they said, okay, if the consonant, then we can pronounce it this way. And it's, it's, just a, it's, just another, it's just another teaching from the critical line of texts. And so somebody asked me a, a question about the, the names, and so I pulled out a couple of, of articles that I found um, interesting and helpful on that. One of them is by Dr. Thomas Strauss. It's called, Who is This Deity Named Yahweh? And the other one is by Thomas Ross, uh, Jehovah and Yahweh. And that one is um, republished by Way of Life Literature, David Cloud, out on his website. And I'll put a, a link in the description of this podcast if it interests you, if that's something that you're interested in. Um, I know it's something that, you know, comes up every now and then, and you'll get, you know, you'll get pointed out, that's not how you pronounce the name, or you read through a book, of you know, it's kind of a scholarly book, and it's Yahweh, 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 and you're like, well, my Bible says Jehovah, and what does that mean? Well, I think these two articles, they, they kind of follow the same tack and same kind of explanation, and and it's a, it, they're short, they're just articles, they're not books or anything like that, and it gives you a good idea about what's going on. If you want to read more about all of that stuff, I would suggest David Cloud's book, Faith, Versus the modern Bible versions, it's a it's a tome, it's a big one, but um, that one it goes far more into depth about about these differences in the in the philosophies and the two lines and, and stuff like that. But I'll put a link in for that um, for these two articles. They're out on my website bible.kadrovsky.net. You can get to it from theology101.net. Um, it's just you got to go down on the bottom right column and hit a link over to my Bible studies. This is where I keep my Bible studies, bible.kodrovsky.net, and then you'll find it over in the alpha, uh, the topical, alphabetical topical stuff down in the uh, various, I've got a chart down there with a bunch of various different um, uh, links and, and stuff that I've taught and stuff that I've written and other stuff that other people have written. You can find some resources there. But like I said, if you don't want to get lost trying to trying to dig through my my uh, my filing cabinet out there, bible.kodrovsky.net, then you can... Uh, uh, just follow the link. I'll put it in the in the description of the podcast. I think it's I think it's worthwhile to you know educate ourselves on these things and remind ourselves. Look, folks, God did not lose the Bible. Okay, that's the whole. That's just about the whole argument with these these um, older and 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 better manuscripts. Well, they're older. They're not better. And the whole premise behind it is, is you know, God lost the word and we found it, you know, um, Tischendorf and Westcott and Hort, and they pull out these Vaticanus and Sinaiticus and, oh, these were lost and we found them. We found them in the 1800s. And, and God doesn't lose his Bible. 
God doesn't lose his car keys. God doesn't lose his, you know, his reading glasses. God's not like us, okay? God did not lose his Bible. God promised us in Psalm 12, 6, and 7 that he would preserve not only his people, Israel, but he would also preserve his words forever. And so it's not a question of, you know, did he? The, the, the question if from a faith-based perspective is, where are they? You can go through every period of history and ask yourself, okay, God promised to preserve his words. Where are they? And I guarantee you can find them without very much effort. It's just not that difficult, okay? And so so this is just, is just one more thing to, to kind of stick in your tool belt. That's something that interests you. Just read through it, scan through it, have an idea. Those links are going to be there um, until I stop paying for my hosting service or until somebody hacks me and tears it all up. And then I get tired of, you know, cleaning stuff up and putting it up there, but it's there. It's there for a good long time. I don't have any, any purpose to, to, to take it down. So, um, if that, that serves you, that's, that's great. Have at it. And let's get back to talking about, um, edification. Like I said, we've been building up a, a biblical philosophy of discipleship, and I want to reiterate that when I talk about philosophy, we're not talking about philosophy of the world, okay? We're just talking about how does this thing happen? You know, we looked at a biblical theology of discipleship where we went to the Bible and we built our knowledge of this work of God, this theology about what's called discipleship, and we we looked at the word disciple and, and what does it mean and how did Jesus Christ change the the you know the, the term and we've invented a couple of terms to help us in explaining this process. We use discipleship to refer to the process of of a uh, the disciple goes through. We use the word verb discipling to refer to the actions of being and making disciples. And so we went through all of that to build this this biblical foundation and knowledge about okay now we understand discipleship. We even looked at it in the Old Testament you know and and saw this this tie-in that really all discipleship is, is God restoring his lost image and lost man. And what he wants us to do is conform us to the image of Christ. So that's that's what we see. God is restoring his image in lost man. He does that through the new birth, that's evangelism, and then through a process of edification, this process that starts after somebody gets saved, of growing in holiness or growing in Christ or being conformed to the image of Christ, however you want to coin it. Um, that's that's the process of discipleship. And so we've been trying to build what we call a biblical philosophy of discipleship, and that being uh, a biblical explanation of how does this happen. Okay, discipleship is made up of evangelism and edification. You know, somebody becomes a disciple through evangelism. So the first step of discipleship is evangelism, but then after that there's this whole process uh, for the rest of our lives of growing in Christ, of being edified in Christ, of building upon this foundation, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, building upon it, of edifying and, and, and others building upon it. And we, we build the temple, so to speak. And this process is a lifelong process because it's not over until Jesus Christ comes back for us and, and we experience the resurrection of our bodies. We receive the glorified body, and Philippians 1.6 becomes a reality of you know God finishing the work that he started in us. And he started the work when we were saved. He made us born again. He regenerated us. And, uh, and then that process continued until the day we die 
or the day he comes back for us. So we need to kind of tweak our vocabulary. We need to kind of change how we talk about discipleship. You know, a lot of people talk about evangelism and discipleship. We cannot divorce the two. A lot of times we find people referring to discipleship as kind of a new members class or a new members program, and then we give them a little certificate that says, you've done it, you're done, you're through discipleship. And and then they, they kind of think, okay, what's, what's after discipleship? Well, that's ridiculous. If we actually have a biblical understanding of what discipleship is, we know that the finished product of discipleship is the disciple is as his master. That's Luke 6.40. And the end of discipleship, Romans 8.29, is that we have been conformed to the image of Christ. So it's that restoration of God's image in lost man. And until that image is fully restored, well, then discipleship is not done. Okay, so we need to understand discipleship can take place through the the preaching of the pulpit. Discipleship can take place one-on-one. It can take place in midweek Bible studies and small groups and houses. Uh, Some discipleship can take place over the internet. We're listening to podcasts, looking at videos. We need the local church. We're going to talk about that a lot in this lesson about, um, you know, the means of edification. And uh, it can take place in our own personal lives, reading and studying the Bible, praying, witnessing to people, growing in our faith. And so that's kind of where we want to focus today. That's what we want to focus on in this lesson on edification. So we saw that we have a biblical philosophy of evangelism. How does evangelism take place? How does salvation happen in the life of a lost man? And we saw that there were means of salvation and there were goal, or means of evangelism and, and then means and then goals of salvation. And so we're going to see the same thing here. We want to build a biblical philosophy of edification. Okay, We want to look and see what the Bible says about how edification takes place. Uh, when we're talking about, you know, how, I want to grow in Christ, I want to be more like Christ, I want to be a mature believer, I want to be spiritual and not carnal, um, how does that happen? And how much of that is, is, is God's work, and how much of that depends on us? Because again, you know, we're, we are not Calvinists, we are Bible believers, okay? The Calvinist says God does it all. And so, well, if God does it all, then I'm going to go watch Netflix. I'm going to go get another college degree. I'm going to go make some more money. I'm going to go out and get a piece of cheesecake, you know, because that's a whole lot more enjoyable for me than trying to evangelize the lost and trying to help the saved grow in Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's just not logical, it's not reasonable, and in addition, it's simply not biblical. In, in both of these aspects, evangelism and edification, there is clearly a part and portion that, that depends completely upon God. But there's something about, there's something in each of these, edification, there's something in, in evangelism that that's ours to do. You know, God said, go and preach the gospel, and how are they going to believe unless they hear the preacher? So if they don't hear, we are impeding the work of evangelism in the world. And so we can't, we can't, can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. God does some of it, and so do we. And so with this, this edification, we're going to see through the means and the goals of, of edification that there is part that we do, and there's part that, uh, that, that God does. And so just to start, let's remind ourselves, okay, looking at the Apostle Paul, 
knowing that the Apostle Paul was given as our Apostle, he's the Apostle to the Gentiles, he's the Apostle to the uncircumcision, he's our Apostle, he is the primary steward of the stewardship that was dispensed um, to the church for the church age. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, that we should follow him as he follows Christ. And so we learn how to follow Christ by following Paul. And one of the things we saw as we, we looked at evangelism was that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.17, you know, Christ did not send me to baptize, but he sent me to preach the gospel. And so one of the primary focal points of Paul's life and ministry, where he poured his time and his energy into, was evangelism. And we see him through these three missionary journeys. When he goes to a place where there's not a church, he's always preaching, starts in the synagogue, or, or he goes out to the, to, the, to the plaza where there's people, and he preaches. He just open-air preaches. And even when he's already established a church and he's working with the believers, you also see him going out and preaching the gospel. You know, he says, I preach the gospel publicly and and door to door. He was an evangelist. He went out and evangelized. And so we don't want to lose that. We don't want to to say that that's not our focus. It needs to be a principal focus in our ministries because it was a principal focus in the ministry of Paul. And yet Paul didn't just evangelize. He also labored and, 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 and invested time and resources and his strength, his, his effort into edifying believers. Uh, I mean, like the second missionary journey, you know, he says, hey, let's go back and check on these guys. We want them to Christ. We started churches, and uh, let's go back and check on them, see how they're doing, see if we can't establish them in the faith. And so he refers to this in Colossians 1, to 29, and this is one of those passages I'm going to refer to a couple of times uh, during the during this 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 lesson on a philosophy, a biblical philosophy of edification, how edification happens. And just to see the focus of Paul in believers and helping believers become established in the faith and grow in the faith, he says in Colossians 1, 27, he says, "...to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." He says, "...whom we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And he says, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. And so so we see Paul, he says, look, I want to warn every man, I want to teach every man in all wisdom so that I can present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That, that term perfect ties us back into discipleship, because Luke 6.40 says that the the disciple needs to grow and be as his master. When he's as his master, he's perfect, perfect as his master, okay? And, and Jesus Christ, the perfect man, is the goal. We are being conformed to his image. But Paul says in verse 29, and what we want to focus on here, he says, I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. This was one of the things Paul worked at. This is one of the things Paul intentionally strove to accomplish. He wanted to see every believer perfected in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about discipleship, we, we can't just keep ourselves in the four walls of the local church because discipleship begins with evangelism. A disciple is made through evangelism, and so we need to go out and preach the Word. But yet there are those in the body of Christ who think this is all we need to do because then God takes takes charge and He'll, he'll see to the, to, the, to the growth of His children— 
Well, that's partially true, but not, not totally true. It's not a biblical statement because Paul labored, he strove, he, he made an effort to teach and admonish, to preach and, and help believers grow in Christ-likeness. And so our mission, life's mission, is to be and make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That mission includes evangelism. We need to, first, we need to be saved. If we want to be a disciple, we got to be saved. And if we want to make disciples, we need to go out and strive for the salvation of others. We got to go and preach the gospel. But our mission also includes edification. Folks, if we're saved, we need to grow in Jesus Christ. You see, it's not just enough to say, oh, I'm saved. I've got my fire insurance. I'm not going to go to hell. No, it's not enough. We need to grow in Christ to, to glorify God, to, to, to grow in Him, to enjoy Him forever. We need to grow in Christ's likeness. And so we need to help others also. If we're not only going to be disciples, but we make disciples, we've got to help others in that process. And so, um, like I said, it's, evangelism is the first step in the process of discipleship, but it's just the first step. How much you know? You, you look at the the analogy, the metaphor, parallel metaphor of of uh, of life. You know, you say, "Well, I have been born again. I'm a babe in Christ, and now I need to grow in maturity." And you look at a baby that's born. Okay, that's just the first step in his life. Baby is born, and then what? Well, then that baby needs to be fed and cleaned and cared for and 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 loved and and then you got to educate him and train him up in the way he should go. I mean, there's that 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 birth, that new birth, is just the first step of a lifelong process of growing to maturity. And so when we when we're saved, then we begin this lifelong process of growing in Jesus Christ, and that means that we help other saved believers also grow in Christ. So evangelism and salvation is just the first step in the process of discipleship that's going to be for the rest of our life until Jesus Christ comes back and completely conforms us to his image, okay? So the disciple is not above his master, Luke 640, but everybody that is perfected shall be as his master. And that means for us right now that we need to understand a biblical philosophy of edification to understand how spiritual growth happens. How does how does one grow in spiritual maturity? And and so we're going to see means five means of uh, of edification, and then we're going to see four goals of edification. And like I said, we're going to take a couple of episodes to talk about the means of edification because it's important. This is where what we need to concentrate on. This is what we need to focus on. What are these components, these big parts of the process of edification? How is it that God can conform us to the image of Christ? And it's kind of like a cycle. You'll see it's kind of like a cycle, but they build upon each other the means, and it takes us from point one to, to, to you know, point in at the end of the, the process where we're conformed a little more to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we kind of start it all over. And we 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 are conscious as, as we grow in Christ of these means of edification, so we don't lose ourselves and we don't misinterpret circumstances of our lives. But then we focus on the goals. And this is what we're going to talk about in the next lesson. <clears throat> next lesson, we're going to talk about the goals of edification because look, God gives the increase. First Corinthians 3, 6. Nobody's disputing that. You know, even, even as a Christian, you know, to say that, you know, there's anybody that would seek God outside of God's influence in his life is a fool. 
But yet God does his work, but he expects us with our free will to make decisions to participate with him in the work that he is doing so that we can grow in Christ. Do we make ourselves grow in Christ? No, God gives the increase. But do we participate in that? Obviously, obviously, because there's some commands that God gives us in this context of of being conformed to the to the image of Christ in this context of growing in, in, in Christ-likeness. So I'm going to start in Romans 12, and this is one of those passages, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we're going to talk about here for, I mean, we're going to talk about it several times. I'll come back to it because it's got key concepts in it for us with regard to our edification. And the first thing we're going to talk about, means number one, is identification with Christ. Okay? We need to identify with Christ. Now, if you're like me, <clears throat> And that kind of that that statement kind of creates some abstract nebulous concept in your mind and you're like um okay i i get it identify with christ and so you think well how what does that mean how how does that happen it's abstract it's kind of nebulous and we're going to we're going to develop the idea we're going to develop that here as we go along but just focus on Romans 12:1 and 2 here for just a minute edification our growth in Christ requires an identification with Christ. Okay? I am no longer of this world. I am a Christian. And the example I always give is, you know, we get to these conversations all the time. Hey, what do you do? You know, talking about what kind of work do you have? What do you do? Uh, well, I'm a manager at a supermarket. What do you do? Well, I'm a lawyer. What do you do? Well, I'm a doctor. What do you, what do, you do? Well, I'm a cop. And that's okay, but biblically, that's not true. When somebody says, hey, what do you do? You know what you should say? I mean, honestly, biblically, oh, I make disciples. Then what? You say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, I thought you were a cop. Well, that's what I do to make money, but I'm a Christian. And so my calling in life is to evangelize the lost and edify the saved. I'm here to make disciples. Okay, What I do to make money to put food on the table, that's secondary. And yes, part of my, part of my duty as a disciple of Jesus Christ is doing the job God gives me to the best of my ability so I can provide for my own and be a good witness and a good testimony, and God will reward us in the, in the judgment seat of Christ for how we do our job. So I, I don't want to... I don't want to sound like the job is not important. We definitely need a biblical theology of work in our modern church, but we don't lose sight of what we are. We are children of God. We are sons of God. We are Christians. We are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we are. And so with that in mind, edification requires identification. Edification in Christ requires identification with Christ, Look at, what's, look at what Romans 12, 1 and 2 say. Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay. Now, obviously, there's a lot we can say about this uh, about this passage. There's a lot that that I mean, you you as well as I, if you have been in church for any any amount of time, you've heard lots of messages. 
that either are based on this passage or bounce around this passage and use it. Um, God doesn't want us to be conformed to this world. He doesn't want us to be worldly, to be carnal, to be like the other people in this world, but he wants us to be transformed, and that happens by the first renewing of our minds. And so for the transformation to take place, the transformation there of verse 2, to not be conformed to the, to the world, but rather to be transformed, to be transformed like God wants us to be, to be changed, we have to make the decision in verse 1 to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, Paul says, I beseech you that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable unto God. Now, that's, this is where we start talking about this idea of identifying with Christ. You present your body, and we're not talking about um, we're talking about your 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 hands, your feet, your legs, your torso, your head, your ears, your eyes. It's your body. And this is something you're going to have to do every day. This is something we do every day. We get up, we get our face in the Bible, we read the Bible, okay? No Bible, no breakfast. Uh, we read the Bible, we pray. Why? Because we want we want to live for God. We are sacrificed to God. We're living sacrifices. So today, as I live out today in this body, I am to be a living sacrifice. I am to sacrifice myself and what I want so that I can live for God and what he wants. This living sacrifice, it says, is holy. Holy in the Bible means set apart for God. It's not some esoteric, mystical, weird idea that you're floating above the earth and, and free of sin. Holy is just something that has been set apart for God, for God's use. The Holy Bible. Okay, you could take a Holy Bible and tear it to pieces and burn it if you wanted to. Okay, there's nothing crazy, weird, magical, mystical about this book that you hold in your hands, but it's holy because God inspired it. He preserved it. That book and all of its words have been set apart by God for God and for his use. That's what we are to be in this world. You see, you are not your own. Your life is not your own. You do not exist in this world to be a cop, a lawyer, a doctor, a bus driver, a taxi driver, a construction worker. You live and exist in this world to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You exist in this world to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. You are a Christian. That's what we need to understand when we talk about identification with Christ. If we don't identify with Christ, if we don't consciously make this mental decision and this mental picture each day, I am not my own. I am a living sacrifice for Christ. I am to live for him, holy, set apart, acceptable to him, to do that which he wants, then we're not going to live for him. We're going to live for ourselves. We're going to identify with what we are. I'm a cop, so I want to do that job best I can. So I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do the other things so that I can do my professional development and I can make my get my promotions and I can do that. And I'm not saying that that's bad. All I'm saying is that's secondary. Primary is this. I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am I am to be like Christ. I am to walk like Christ. I am to live like Christ. I am to live as a sacrifice, die to myself, live holy, set apart for God, 
that's pleasing to him. Okay, now I just want to make make mention of the context of this this passage, Romans twelve one and two, because a lot of times we we lose it. We lose it in the structure of the book of Romans, and it's only when you kind of take a step back and look at the forest and and not the trees that you get this idea and how to tie this this passage into a key concept back in in a previous chapter. Because if you look at the book of Romans. It really divides itself into three parts. You have the first eight chapters that are doctrine. You have the next three chapters, which are kind of parenthetical, and they talk about Israel. It's about Israel's past, present, and future, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And then you jump from from, from there to, to chapter 12 to chapter 16, where Paul primarily talks about um, application. How do we apply what he just taught us? Now, the key thing to, to see here is that Romans 9, 10, and 11 form a parenthesis. It's a parenthetical portion of the book of Romans. And Paul takes this parenthetical portion, not to say that it's not important. Obviously, it's important, it's inspired and preserved, and we need to understand it. But before Paul takes the, the, the doctrine for the church age, there in those first eight chapters of Romans, and starts applying it to our lives, he tells us about Israel, because we need to understand God's not done with Israel. God's not finished with his people, and so Paul spends three chapters. He talks about, in Romans 9, Israel's past, that Israel is the chosen of God, okay? Not chosen individually. We're not Calvinists. Chosen. Chosen as a nation, okay? As a nation. And then in Romans 10, Paul talks about the the present condition of Israel. That's, that's why Romans 10 is such a key chapter for salvation, because Paul wants his brethren to be saved. And Romans 10 tells them how to be saved during the church age. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He refers them back to the Palestinian covenant in uh, Deuteronomy 30 to say, look, God established the conditions of salvation back then, and it's no different today. Okay, so you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and so Romans 10 shows us the present condition of Israel. And then in Romans 11, God shows us the future of Israel, that God will restore the nation. It's his chosen nation. Israel will be restored. Physical descendants of the nation of Israel from all 12 tribes will be physically restored. All Israel shall be saved. Okay, Jews from all 12 tribes. And so Paul takes three chapters to explain Israel to us. Okay, very, very important uh, to understand. I think it's, it's, it's so important. That's one of the things I want to spend a good amount of time on talking about um, one of these days in our in our podcast here, because it is. It's like Theology 101. The, one of the most basic things in the Bible is God chose Israel, and that never changes, okay? From, from Genesis chapter 12 through the rest of biblical history off into eternity, Israel is God's chosen people. And so Paul takes three chapters to explain that to us. Very, very important. And yet, okay, yet for our study here, here's what I want you to see. Those three chapters are parenthetical. Okay, what do I mean by that? I mean, you could read Romans 1 to 8, and I would suggest you do this, just kind of as an intellectual exercise. Read Romans 1 to 8, skip over 9, 10, and 11, and then pick up immediately with Romans 12. And you, you're, you'll see the continuity of thought from doctrine to application. And in our context here of understanding a biblical philosophy of discipleship, looking at evangelism and now specifically in edification, this is, this is, this is key, okay? This is essential to see because one of our, one of our key verses about discipleship is found in Romans 8.29 
Romans 8.29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, God predestinated us. He predetermined the destination. Here is where he will take us. God's plan is that we would be conformed to the image of his Son. You see that word? Pay attention, conformed to the image of his son. Then we finish Romans 8, we jump over the parenthesis, and we get to Romans 12, and he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so from this this key concept of discipleship, this this restoration of the image of God and lost man from Romans 8.29, Paul says, look, God predestinated us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And then he says, immediately after that, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And so we see that the transformation of Romans 12.2 is the same conforming we see back in Romans 8.29. It is being conformed to the image of Christ. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what God wants to do. And the antithesis of that is being conformed to the world. Now, that's the danger that we we have. You know, the the world, it's likened in the Bible in a, a metaphor to a river. And if you jump in a river, it's going to take you downstream. There's this current in the world that will just carry you downstream. You don't have to swim. You don't have to make any effort at all. As soon as you step in in the river, that current is pulling on you. Anybody that's spent any time, you know, out in the woods, playing in the water, you know, as a kid, going on a canoe trip or anything like that, you know that. And so the safest way when, you, when you're playing around on the river, we did this when I was a kid, you know, go out to, I don't know, big old muddy river, you know, I was in the Boy Scouts, and we played around the river. And what you have to do is you pick a landmark out on the shore, you know, where you've left your shoes or whatever, and, and you always have to constantly keep looking at that landmark and then swimming upstream because that river's pulling you downstream. And look, folks, the world pulls you downstream. I'm, I'm talking into my microphone today on a Saturday. This Saturday is easy to be walking with the Lord. Why? Because I got up this morning and I read my Bible and I prayed and I made some uh, some notes on a piece of paper about what I wanted to do today as far as my podcast and some other Bible studies and books I want to read and notes I want to take. I, I got my day planned out. It's easy. But come Monday, when I go back to work, and I got to get my head and my caseload, and I got to I got to do the things that my employer wants me to do, and I need to do them well as Christ wants me to do. And then that's Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, folks. That river pulls us downstream, and if we don't make a conscious effort every day to identify with Christ, to get up in the morning and Romans twelve one, make ourselves. That living sacrifice, holy, set apart to God, to get it reestablished in our head, I am not of this world. I am in it. I'm not of it. I am Jesus Christ's disciple. I am a Christian. We're going to get pulled downstream. We're going to find ourselves getting more and more worldly and wondering, how did that happen? 
And so if we want to grow in Christ, here is where we start, okay? And I know I've been beating this point. I mean, it's just the first, it's the first means. I get it, okay? I get it. But please understand, this is where we start. This is important because the transformation that we see in Romans 12 too, which is the same work of being conformed to the image of Christ, it depends on Romans 12.1. And Romans 12.1 says that we need to identify with Christ as a living sacrifice. We need to present ourselves, mind and body, to God and not to the world. We need to align ourselves, mind and body, with our thoughts and with our behavior. Align ourselves with God to say, I am going to live for God. I am going to read his Bible, renew my mind, think his thoughts. I am a Christian first and foremost. We'll never get to, to, to Romans 12 too. We'll never get to the transformation. The transformation occurs when we are the living sacrifice. We must identify with Christ. Okay, that's another thing Paul says, another passage in, uh, in Romans chapter 6, verses 11 to 13. Romans 6, 11 to 13, the Bible says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves. Now, that's, that's a word. That's, I mean, it's unless you watch the Beverly Hillbillies, you probably never heard that word before. Reckon, okay? Reckon ye, ye also yourselves. That means to think on this. Consider yourself. Make a decision. Think on it. Make, make this the thought in your head. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin reign, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should uh, obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And so we need to reckon ourselves dead to sin. We need to reckon ourselves no longer part of this world, to reckon ourselves, to consider ourselves, to make that conscious, intentional decision, to reckon, to consider ourselves alive to Christ. That, that is how we identify with Christ, and that's exactly what Paul says. You know, let's, let me just mention a couple of things in 1 Corinthians 6. It's a long passage. I'm not going to read through the whole thing. Um, and I don't think it's necessary. First Corinthians six nine to twenty. First Corinthians six nine to twenty. It's 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 one of these things. You know, one of these passages that we we kind of read through, and sometimes we understand it, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're just kind of you know reading through the Bible, and and that's okay, just getting the words in. But I want to draw your attention to something very important here within this context of identifying with Christ. Paul says, "Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God?" And then he begins to explain some of the unrighteous acts that are not acceptable. He says, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So, okay, we, we get it. We get it, Paul. Uh, he says, you know, these kind of things are not acceptable. Uh, these kind of people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says in verse 11, And such were some of you. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our Lord. And so that's where our ident identification comes from. I, can, I guarantee, I don't know when you're listening to this, this episode, 
but I guarantee either today or yesterday, you committed one of these unrighteous acts that Paul just mentioned. You say, well, I haven't fornicated or committed adultery. Well, Jesus Christ said, if you look with lust, you committed adultery of the heart. How many times did you do that this last week? You know, he says about idolaters. Idolaters are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You say, well, I'm not an idolater. Oh, yeah? How many, how many times this week did you eat more than you should have? You see, eating more than you should have is gluttony, and that makes a god of your belly. You see how this works? We like to point at other people and say, well, you know, they've got a statue that's in the shape of a chicken, and they, they worship the chicken god. Well, we've got a statue in the form of a football stadium or a baseball stadium or in the shape of a restaurant or a grocery store or a donut shop, and we go and we fall down and worship the God of our belly. You see how that works? So don't tell me that you're finished with 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Don't tell me you're finished with being a fornicator, an idolater, and an adulterer. Don't tell me you're finished being covetous when I know you've got an Amazon account and an Amazon wish list. Okay? And yet Paul says in verse 11, such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. This is where our identification has to come from. If we do not see ourselves in Jesus Christ, we are going to see ourselves in the flesh and in the world just like we are when we look at ourselves in the mirror. Idolatrous, covetous, um, adulterers at heart, we're a mess. We have to identify with Christ, okay? Verse 15 of the same passage, it says, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Our bodies belong to Christ. We need to identify with Christ and be living sacrifices and to say, you know, today with my body, with my mind, with my eyes, with my hands, with everything that is in this body, I'm going to serve Christ. That's identifying with Christ. And verse 20 says, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Okay, your body, what's on the outside, your spirit, what's on the inside. Externally, internally, glorify God. Why? Because he, he owns us. He bought us with a price. That's, that's, that's the truth of being a Christian. Okay, now get, uh, let's go to Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 2, make a couple of points here in Galatians, and we'll move on. But Galatians chapter 2, this is, this is Paul. Okay, Paul made a conscious decision. And I, I, you know, I, I don't know Paul, I didn't walk with Paul, but I would have to say from, from what we know of Paul in the Bible, Paul made a conscious decision every day to identify with Christ. Okay, he considered himself dead to his past life, and he intentionally thought of himself as pertaining to Christ. You know, I used to be a theologian. I used to be a Jew of the Jews, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I used to be all that. Now I count it as dung because I got Christ. I want to be found in Christ. Christ is my all in all. It's Jesus Christ. Galatians 2, 19 and 20, Paul says, Galatians 2, 19, for I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. 
And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul says, I'm done with the old life. Consciously, intentionally, he said, I'm, I'm done with it. Okay, I'm not going to think of myself as part of this world anymore. And I am Christ's. The life that I lead now, I live for the Lord Jesus Christ in thought, in word, and deed. Now, that decision, that identifying with Christ, is a conscious decision that we need to make intentionally and regularly. Why? Because it's that mental orientation toward God rather than a mental orientation toward the world. That's another way to think about this, identifying with Christ. When we have a mental orientation toward the world, that's what we think about. Those are the main goals that we strive for. That's what we're all about. And I'm telling you, if we continue to do that, if we continue to live with that mental orientation toward the world, the one little carrot that we have on the stick in front of us is retirement. And you know what we'll do? We'll say, oh yeah, this is right now because then I'm going to serve God when I get to retirement. Yeah, when I get to retirement, then I'm going to, or when I get to retirement, then I'm going to, when I get to retirement, when you get to retirement, you will have lived 20, 30, 40 or more years with your mental orientation toward the world. And at 60, 70 years old, do you think it's going to be easy to change your mental orientation to actually live for God and do something for God in retirement? You probably get cancer. You're going to you're going to you're going to retire at 70. You'll get cancer at 69 and a half. Right? Murphy's Law. No, the time to live for Christ is now. And, and we, we're, not all, we're, we're not all supposed to quit our jobs and be vocational ministers. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, look, get up in the morning, spend time in the book. Read the Bible. Think about what it says. Write a thought down in a notebook, a journal. I hate that word, journal. It's like journey. I'm on a journey, you know, on a robust journey in Christ. Now, write it down in some way, somehow, in an agenda, in a journal, in a book. Pray about that. Do that every day, every morning. Pray to God. God, I, I am thankful for Jesus Christ. I know I'm in Christ. Help me to, to, to do my job well so I'm a good testimony for Jesus Christ. And then add things to it. After you get home from work, do something, you know, something, just something that's that, that, that will get you back on track. You know, buy a good book, a book about the Bible, okay? And then tell yourself, buy that book, Faith Versus the Modern Versions by David Cloud. Buy um, J. Sidlow Baxter's Explore the Book. Get Sidlow Baxter's Strategic Grasp of the Bible. Um, get uh, Francis Schaeffer's Systematic Theology. Get N's uh, Moody Handbook of Theology. Get, get any good book and just say, you know, when I come home from work, you know, whatever your routine is, um, I work out and then I eat, then read. You say, well, I want to watch TV. Okay, before you watch TV, read a good book for 15, 20, or 30 minutes. Okay? And all I'm saying is add things to your walk with God to challenge yourself, to continue to renew your mind, to do things according to this mental orientation toward Jesus Christ. 
rather than a mental orientation toward the world. Because look, if you get home from work and all you do is eat dinner, work out, and and then watch TV or read a novel, all you're doing is keeping that orientation toward the world. And we need to identify with Christ. We need to shift that mental orientation back to Christ like we had when we got up in the morning and, and had our quiet time in the Bible. So do something like that. Look, it's, it's Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Now, I'll read Colossians 3, 1 to 4. It's one of those passages we've all heard, we've all understood, we, we've, all, we've all spent time in, okay? Um, but just pay attention to the commandments, the imperatives, okay? Paul says, if ye then be risen with Christ, okay, if you're a Christian, if you've been born again, if you've been regenerated, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. You see that? That's that, that's that mental orientation. And it's a command because... Look, God told us to do it. God gives the increase in, in evangelism and edification. Yes, God gives the increase. But look, look, there's part of this work that we got to do. And it's, it's, this is where we begin. Look, if you're risen with Christ, if you're regenerated, if you've been born again, if you're a Christian, Paul says two things. Seek those things which are above. Set your affection on things above. That's, that's your responsibility. That's your duty before God. That is part of this identifying with Christ that I'm, I'm not seeking primarily things of this world. I am seeking things above. You know, you remember the verse and the passage in, uh, in Matthew chapter 6 that talks about where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you know why so many Christians have such a hard time with having a a heart dedicated to Jesus Christ, the church, and the mission of making disciples? You know why it's so hard for them to have a heart for missions? It's because their treasure is in something else. And I'm not talking about money. Money secondary. The two most valuable things that you have are time and energy. Now you tell me that that's not true. Time and energy. You've got so little time in the morning before you have to go to work. That you should take that time and invest that valuable, precious little time that you have in something that will give you eternal reward. Learn the Bible. Pray to God. Invest your time. Make an effort to do it. And I'm telling you, when you come home from work and you're tired, it takes real effort to reorient yourself toward God through some sort of spiritual discipline reading the Bible, memorizing verses, going to church for Wednesday night Bible study, um, reading a book about the Bible, working on a Bible study. Folks, those spiritual, that takes effort. It's spiritual discipline. It takes effort. You can't pay somebody to do that for you. Time and effort. I think if more Christians would invest more time and effort in Christ in being like Christ, in learning the Bible, and doing what the Bible says, I think we as a church would have a whole lot more heart for missions and the mission. 
And so let's let's finish this up. We're almost at an hour here. We'll finish it up. We'll continue in the next episode. But look, without an intentional decision on our part to identify with Christ, we will never grow in Christ. Without an intentional and conscious decision to invest time and effort in Jesus Christ, to get that mental orientation toward Christ instead of toward the world, we're going to continue the same as we were before. You think about, you know, when you first got saved, you brought a whole lot of baggage to your salvation. You came into Jesus Christ, you had bad habits, you had sin that you needed to get rid of, you brought a whole lot of baggage in with you, and God slowly probably cleans you up, little by little, little by little, cleaning you up. You get rid of this, and you start doing something better, and you get rid of the other, and you start doing something better. If you never identify with Christ, you will continue identified with the world. Because like I said, the world's like a river carries you downstream without any effort. You have to go to work, you have to go to school, you watch TV, you watch the news, you get on Facebook, you ought to get off Facebook, but if you get on Facebook, you get on Facebook, and all that junk just inundates you, washes your brain, washes your mind, gives you the thoughts and and intents of the world. You have to intentionally identify with Christ. You have to pull back from that stuff, turn it off, shut it off, turn away from it, and reorient your mind to Jesus Christ. Identify with Christ, because if you don't, you'll never grow. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This was the problem in the church in Corinth. They never identify with Christ. They continue to walk as natural men instead of walking as, as Christians. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you are not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able... For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal? And, listen, walk as men. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? We'll either walk as men or we'll walk as Christians. And you'll either identify with Christ or identify with this world. And you do that, I'm telling you, it's, it's an unconscious pulling of the world to get you to identify with the world. It's the river that pulls you downstream. You see the same problem in in the book of Hebrews. You know, when Paul wrote these Hebrews in in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, he says says something very similar. He says, "For for, For the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not a strong drink. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. And then he says, But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. It's the same problem. And so to to reach the goal of being conformed to the image of Christ, we first need to forget those things which are behind. There's a lot of bad things that are behind. I get it. You know, a lot of our mistakes, they're just mistakes. Get up and continue. Forget that which is behind. This is Philippians 3, 13 and 14. 
But I'm telling you, there's a lot of good things in our past. There's a lot of good things, even in our life now, that need to be behind us. Because we'll sacrifice the best for the good. You know, a job is good. Professional development, it is good. An education, it's good. But don't sacrifice the best for the good. The best is Jesus Christ. The best is knowing God and making him known. The best is living for the judgment seat of Christ, investing in gold, silver, precious stones. The gold is the knowledge of God. The silver, the price of redemption, is evangelism. The precious stones is is edification, investing in the precious living stones of other believers. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth, time and effort, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's how we need to live, okay? That's how we we focus on being conformed to the image of Christ. That's how we, we, we change our behavior according to God's design. We become this living sacrifice. You know, I sacrifice myself, I die to myself, and I live for Christ. I give God my, my mind and my body, and today I live for Him. I identify with Christ. Okay, like I said, and I'm going to beat this horse just one more time, this is why. It is essential and important that we begin our day with the Bible, to start our days off in the Bible and prayer, okay? Why? Because if we don't, you know how it is. You get up, and the first thing you're thinking is, okay, what do I got to do at work today? You know, if you're a teacher, you got your lesson plans in in mind. If you're a lawyer, you've got your cases that you got to do. You know, you're a a doctor, you got the people that you're trying to tend to, and the others are going to come in today. And if you're a truck driver, well, you got to get from point A to point B. You know, it's it's all of that, and it comes crashing down on top of us every morning. And so you have to build the habit. The first thing you do when you get up is you get alone with God, read the Bible. Read the Bible, get something out of the Bible, write it down somewhere, and pray about that what God told you in the Bible. We call that time alone with God, or we call that quiet time. I don't care what you call it, you need time in the Bible and prayer every day. Because if you don't, as soon as you get up, you have immediately been pulled down river, and you're immediately identifying with the world and what you have to do in the world. That's not a bad thing. That's being responsible. I get it. But our priority is not to be pulled down river by the current of this world. Our priority is to set our eyes and affection upon Jesus Christ and identify with him and say, today, I'm a Christian. And then renew our minds through the scripture and pray to God, draw close to him so we depend upon him. And then we go about our business and do our job to the glory of God the Father. And so if we want to grow in Christ, if we want to be edified, if we want to be conformed to the image of Christ, if we want to see the lost image of God replaced in in us and, and restored in us, the first step is our first means. We have to identify with Christ. We're Christians. We're followers of Christ. Consider yourself 
dead to self and sin, alive to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our all in all. He is our priority. Everything else is secondary. If we'll do that, if we'll identify with Christ, we'll find that we'll begin to grow in Christ. And with that, there's some other, there's some other means. Four more means. We're going to go over those in the next episode. So thanks for coming back. Thanks for listening. If you made it all the way this far, I hope the teaching was edifying to you. I hope it was a blessing. I hope it challenges you. I hope it gives you something to think about and chew on as you go about the rest of your day. Thanks for spending your time listening to my podcast, Theology 101. Simple is better, and it's just not that difficult to learn the Bible so we can do what it tells us. You can find the rest of my studies in English out on my website, theology101.net. And if you do Spanish, tengo más de 15 años de estudios bíblicos disponibles en mi sitio web, teología101.net. If you'd like to contact me, there's a contact page on my website. You're also more than welcome to visit me any Sunday that you wish. My church information is also out on my website. Remember what Nicholas von Zinzendorf always said, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Learn the Bible, do what it tells you, and come back for more Theology 101.